You're listening to an Empavillion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. It's uh, wonderful and, I have to say, slightly disconcerting to be back at our first in-person event for the year. It's really lovely to see you all. And I think we all just want to stand around talking and drinking and hugging if we're allowed to. Um, so thank you so much for coming. Uh, we ran you know, a million, it felt like, but actually it was probably over 50 online events last year. And it's... Uh, thrilling to be back in the flesh, although they were wonderful too and we made many great new friends, some of whom who are here. Um, so today we're here to discuss the many roles that women play in shaping our cities and built environment. This is the third event we've run on this topic. Uh, the first was back at the M Pavilion in 2015, the second in Adelaide that same year. And I uh, should also acknowledge Karen Burns who conceptualised that first event with me. Karen was a speaker at that session, and you can still listen to the recording of it on the M Pavilion website. Those first two events were incredibly successful. Um, uh, although framed in very similar terms, the conversations evolved quite differently. I was always interested in how we might build uh, that series, and I'm particularly interested in how we can build knowledge and insight through conversation and sort of iterations over time. It's something we do at a lot of parlor events. So when Jen Zelenska of the M Pavilion got in touch and, um, and said, we'd like you to do another event and we want you to do another Women Transforming the City, uh, we were very, very happy to oblige. Um, these events are also uh, a counterpart to a lot of our other work, which often focuses on equity in the workplace. Um, and many of the events we ran last year did uh, address that topic from many different perspectives. So it's really great to also open up the discussion about how women have transformed our cities in many different roles, as grassroots activists, as elected representatives, as policymakers, as public servants, as philanthropists and clients, as journalists, writers, historians, and of course, as architects, landscape architects, urban planners, and many other professionals. We're interested in what we might take away from this work as we continue to, uh, you know, work very hard to make our cities better and much more socially inclusive places. So today, we have a fantastic panel to take us through these issues. All are active in the urban environment in very different ways. So, Tanya, they're all extraordinary and exceptional and I just have short bios for what are amazing um, bodies of work. Tanya, Tanya's my friend. <laughs> Tanya is an architect, advocate, writer, researcher and educator. She has exper extensive experience in architecture, urban design and strategic design. She's co-founder of the architectural research practice OOPLA, uh, where she focuses on engaging people and communities with architecture, cities and public space in creative ways. Um, and one of the things that P, that P stands for politics and many other things, but it also stands for play. And I think, um, I think that combination is really important. Tanya is a passionate advocate for public space. As president of Citizens for Melbourne, she led the successful Our City, Our Square campaign, opposing the demolition of Fed Square's Yarra building. Yes. <laughs> and she did it. <laughs> 
she's undertaking a PhD um, at the University of Melbourne uh, and uh, developing strategies for engaging public audiences with the public realm, and she's amazing. They're all amazing. Felicity, 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 can I tell you, I know all of this because they've all done their Marion's List entries. So if you are a woman active in the built environment, do your Marion's List entry. When Felicity's came in, I just thought it was the, you know, the perfect example of what a Marion's List entry should be. So I know this because they've done it. You should too if you're a woman in the built environment. <sighs> I'm rambling. Felicity is a historian, a heritage advocate with extensive cultural heritage experience across consultancy, public history, and the not-for-profit sector, with a multidisciplinary approach across heritage, history, and urban planning. Felicity is passionate about advocating for the protection of places of, with special value to communities and promoting the contribution that heritage conservation can make to vibrant, livable, and sustainable cities. As an advocate, she also actively works to expand professional and public conceptions of heritage and to be more relevant and inclusive. Felicity is currently Executive Manager of Advocacy at the National Trust of Australia, Victoria, and the President of Yarra Pools, a not-for-profit community-led initiative to reintroduce swimming to the Yarra Burrung. Have I done something wrong? No. Just kidding. Just, yeah. <laughs> just, just having a sub <laughs> She sits on a number of boards, which sounds like many to me, and I'm not going to read them all out, but um, that's, that's just an abbreviated version of her Marion's List entry, go and do yours. Emma, I had to write Emma's bio from the internet, because she <laughs> hasn't done <laughs> Sorry, I'm just slightly hysterical about being out again. Emma is a landscape architect and urban designer. She's currently Director of City Strategy at the City of Melbourne. Uh, the City Strategy Branch have led the Transport Strategy 2030, the Affordable Housing Strategy of 2030, the Central Melbourne Design Guide, the Hoddle Grid Heritage Review, and the Yarra River Burrung Strategy, as well as the design-led plans to the urban renewal areas of the city. Before this, Emma held a range of... Uh, senior public agency roles in the UK and Australia, leading the Master Planning and Housing Program at CABE, the Commission, which is the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, and establishing the Design Review Panel at the Office of the Victorian Government Architect, which makes me remember the first time I met you was at some public, some discussion about some, I can't remember what it was, but you were extraordinarily outspoken and very smart, and I just thought I wanted to get to know you, so. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of got stuck in, I can't remember. Anyway. It was setting up CAVE in Australia. Yes. Oh, in Victoria. Yes. She was very impressive. Okay. She's a former president of AILA, the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects, a Churchill Fellow, and in 2018, she was named one of the top 50 public sector women. <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> oh, dear. Emma has advised on the procurement, design, and delivery of significant public and private projects, and she champions the multidisciplinary design thinking in shaping great cities and places for people. And she's also amazing. They're all amazing. Georgia. Georgia. Melbourne is very lucky. Georgia has just this minute, like two weeks ago, moved to Melbourne. Um, she's an associate editor at Architecture Media, a writer and architectural practitioner, and the co-curator for the 2020 and 2021 Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, which is how I came to know about her. Um, she is a proud descendant of the Kamurilori and Dungati people, 
she completed her MRC and BRC at UQ. She was awarded the Santos Indigenous Prize and selected to take part of the Momoyu Kojima Research Scholarship in Japan. Um, she, following graduation, she worked in practice, uh, delivering a range of projects, and she is on the advisory board of the UQ School of Architecture, and we're incredibly lucky to have you here in Melbourne, and I'm Thank sure you. in like 10 years' time, you're, we won't be able to get through your CV. <laughs> we're very looking for, much looking forward to seeing what you do, Georgia. Thank you. Okay, so, right, anyway. So this is principally going to be a discussion evening. It's principally not going to be me talking. Um, but to start the evening, I've asked each of our panellists to speak briefly about a particular instance in which women have transformed the city in some way. These are very short presentations, and if they're too long, we'll kick each other. Um, we, and it, I've, uh, the idea is that they'll provide a kind of ground for our discussion, which um, will go for some time, and then we will open the panel Sorry. Then we will open the event to uh, questions and discussions from the floor. Um, so, Tanya, you want to take us away? Give you my slide. You slide. Okay, so Justine asked us all to reflect on the way a woman has transformed a city, or the city. This is the city of Melbourne, and this is Barbara Kruger from, I think, 1996, and the work is called Don't Be a Jerk. And I thought that was particularly appropriate given the couple of weeks we've been through recently. And I thought maybe it was self-explanatory and maybe I wouldn't have to say any more. Um, but then I had some thoughts and they were complex. So I wrote them down and hopefully they're not going to take longer than five minutes. They won't, I guarantee you. So I love this work for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's sited opposite Flinders Street Station. You can see the cathedral in the background. And it's on the balustrading of the raised car parking deck of the old gas and fuel towers. And this is a site that we now know as Fed Square, of which Felicity and I have a bit of affection for. <laughs> um, and much better use as public space, I think we'll all agree. But one of the other reasons I love this work is because the work speaks of the importance of the city and public space as a space of critique. And in particular, it speaks of it as a space of feminist critique. So Barbara Kruger's work was some of the first work through which I understood what criticality in the built environment might mean. And from that, you might understand that I went to RMIT. Yes, sorry. Um, but we'll move on. Um, public space, we can, think about, um, as the we can think about it as the physical manifestation of the public sphere. And if we think about what the public sphere is, a little bit theoretically, um, we can think about that space as where we negotiate our social and societal values. It's the place where public opinion is formed and ideally it's, I suppose it's, it's a democratic space if we look at it that way. And ideally it's accessible to all. But what we actually know is that in reality, um, access to public space and the public sphere is not guaranteed. There are people without voice uh, in both of those spaces. There are people that find those spaces inaccessible. Um, and we can see from this image that obvious, uh, sometimes access to public space is gendered and a whole pile of other things as well. Um, the same forces that structure our society structure our public spaces. And so the public space, as mentioned before, is exclusionary. And what I'm interested in is how we work together actively to make it inclusionary. Um, and what I love about this work is that it calls this out. It calls out the gaps uh, in our public spaces in our cities, or one of the gaps, not all of them. 
but it shines a light on the private conversations, practices and structures that shape the city and it opens them up for public discussion. It shows us the public sphere needs critique and that public space can be a powerful site of that critique and that speaking out in public space can be powerful. And for me, my husband asked me, he said, but how does this work transform the city? You know, it's not like making a building, it's not a physical manifestation of change or transformation. Um, so potentially you could think of it as not transforming the city if that's your... Uh, if that's your criteria. But for me, the city has a body, so a physical manifestation, but it also has a heart and a soul. And how we negotiate what the city is and what it means to us is not only manifest in its physical form, but also in its psyche, in its character, in its atmosphere, and this comes down to how we interact in the spaces of our city, the behaviours we accept, reinforce and support. It's not about transforming the form of the city, but transforming the culture of the city. And I think transforming culture is a really interesting thing to think about right now. So Barbara Kruger's work is a cultural act that transforms the city. It links place and public space with social values and takes part in the negotiation of those values. It goes to the heart and soul of the city and questions the standards of behaviour and action that we allow in public space and on our streets. It negotiates and questions the thing we take as acceptable, and in doing so, it plays a part in negotiating the identity of the city and also our cultural identity. It speaks to who we are and what we want to be. And put simply, don't be a jerk. Lessons to live by. Now, we're not going to go in order. We're going to go to Emma next. Thanks, Justine, and thank you, Tanya. That was fantastic. Ma, I don't have a photo, but I do have a book, and it's called Street Fight by Jeanette Sadiq-Khan, who is the New York Transport Commissioner uh, under Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Um, and she uh, is quite a hero of mine, working in public agency. Um, I, uh, you know, someone asked me, what are you going to talk about tonight? I'm going to talk about public agency and what you can do when you work for local government, government, or and how you can impact more broadly. Now, this book is about the fight about public space, and it does go on quite well from where um, you started, Tanya, in terms of it said, what is a city if not its people and its streets? Um, now, under Jeanette Sadiq Khan's reign, which was from 20, sorry, 2007 to 2013, you'll know that she closed Broadway to cars in Times Square. She put in 400 miles of bike lanes through New York, New York City, and 60 plazas throughout the city. Um, it was under the um, plan New York City. It was a blueprint for reducing carbon emissions by 30%, improving efficiency, but also, most importantly, the quality of life in New York. So when we were... This, this, this book, and I really recommend it, it's a bloody great read, um, is really about the fight in cities. And there's this great bit in it that talks about you are driven by how you move around the city, about how you perceive others. So those who drive hate cyclists. And in fact, those who drive hate pedestrians. Pedestrians are on their phones. They get angry at those. I should read it out because it's much better than what I'm saying. Um, but everyone, supposedly, unless you ride a bike, everyone hates cyclists. Uh, so when we were doing the Transport Strategy 2030, I didn't, I didn't go into it with that frame of mind, but I soon found out that it was a very contested field. 
Um, so what I learned from this book and what I wanted to discuss today and then how we translate it into the uh, piece of work that we did at the City of Melbourne was what was very compelling around strategy and then how you deliver strategy was, uh, Janice, we, we might all know that there was tactical urbanism involved in the New York City transformation, but actually what underpinned that was an incredible evidence base that really monitored what was happening in the city at that time, what would be needed to unlock and change the way the city functioned to be more about people and more about efficient movement of people and enjoyable movement of people. Um, it was very much about how you then go from strategy to delivering projects on the ground, but also learning from how you deliver those projects and making sure that influences strategy into the future. It was about vision to plan and always thinking about how that, affect people on the, how that affected people on the ground and how you change people's minds from their positions of how they move around the city. They use pilots, so tactical urbanism, and I've got views on that, but I, I'm not going to go into that tonight. Um, but what they did in the tactical urbanism as a piece of a process of getting to an, a changed city was they measured the impact and they constantly measured when we changed, you know, the lanes in Times Square, what actually happened? And it was different to the perception. It was different to what the taxi drivers thought. Um, it was different. No one ever imagined that that would be able to be done permanently. And it has had actually quite a lot of contests since under different mayors, but it's still there today. Um, the other thing was that they did really effectively, and again, this was very fundamental in how we approached the transport strategy. They went far and wide in their consultation with community and really listened. Um, and then they connected the quality of life, the quality of the streets, the quality of life to the economic health of the city. And so when you can translate change in the city and how people move and relate it to productivity and goodness me, it, you know, it's really important that you're able to quantify and qualify change in a city because then you get more money to deliver more. Um, so she, she captured all her learnings in this book um, and it's an, it was a real inspiration for us when we set out on the Transport Strategy 2030, which is a 10-year, obviously, obviously, um, strategy that we decided we really wanted to go to community first with a huge evidence base. We were helped by academics and consultants of the city to really look at what other places were doing, what our problems were specific to Melbourne and how we could stretch the agenda through a what-if propositions to the community. We had 19,000 people submit to the Transport Strategy not just in central Melbourne, but across the whole of metropolitan Melbourne. And we re were really delighted because what the community told us was, A, it was very contested space, but actually, generally speaking, people wanted to move through using active transport and public transport, which is, I know, not a huge thing to tell you, but it really helps to have the data that then um, helps our... Um, elected representatives to really make great decisions for the future city. And they were bold and it gave them all they needed to make that, um, those great decisions. So I remember on the day that the modal cyclists came into town hall um, when we were trying to take them off the footpaths outside um, Collins Street, and that's been tried for about 30 years in the city. Um, and we offered them free parking on street and they were cross, which is absolutely fine. They are, they've had a privilege and a right that we were taking away and offering them something in return. I remember when the cyclists were not happy that we hadn't connected certain things. I remember when all the car drivers were unhappy that we're suggesting congestion charging was a good idea. But then I turned to this book and there was a great bit in it, and I'm just gonna be really quick, I promise. 
where she says, in the end, what you see on city streets depends on how you get around. Drivers see the street as the territory granted to them that is needlessly interrupted by signs, signals and interlopers, pedestrians, obliviously checking their Twitter feeds, lane-blocking buses and dim-witted other drivers. Enter pedestrians. They are the antithesis, and I can never say that, antithesis, whoever says that, like whoever says that, the antithesis of the car. Their only protection against the car's two tonnes of mass is the attention of the driver and the centimetres of flesh that protect their bones. Yet they are largely turned, tuned out to cars in the city. Enter the bike. Drivers and pedestrians may hate each other, but if they agree on one thing, it's that they both hate cyclists. Drivers and pedestrians haven't learned to read the street and to see or hear bike riders. They aren't expecting them or aren't looking for them. Every pedestrian has a story about being nearly killed by an aggressive, <laughs> wrong way riding, lycra-clad ninja cyclists. Um, anyway, it goes on and on. But what that gave me when I was doing it was it just made me realise that other cities, of course, have done this before, and the fight and the conversation was worth having and worth going hard at. So now, the cover of COVID, and there are not many silver linings, but one that is, did happen is the 10-year transport strategy where we had an implementation plan that every year implemented a little bit of this thing. Um, the six to 10 years was gonna deliver the 40Ks of bike lanes, protected bike lanes in the city, because we found that um, near market cyclists, anyone know what near market cyclists is? I didn't, but the team told me it was me, that people who would ride if they felt safe, um, uh, they need protected bike lanes. We're well on the way to delivering the 40 in the first two years of the strategy because of COVID. Um, and even now we're seeing just huge numbers. You, you provide the infrastructure, people come as long as they feel safe, and then they get confident in the city and we start changing the conversation. So. I just wanted to say that be inspired, read this book, and I shouldn't, oh God, I shouldn't sell these books, should I? But they, it's a great book. The councillors at the City of Melbourne, many of them have read this and were really inspired by it as well. Um, the Lord Mayor Cap has, uh, loves this book. Um, our chief exec, this is, there are great stories in here. I encourage you to do it and also to engage in public agency because that's where you can make big change for many, many people. Excellent. Georgia. Thanks, Justine. Um, well, as Justine mentioned earlier, I literally arrived in Melbourne uh, four weeks ago. And so when she asked me to answer the question, provide an example of how women have transformed the city, I went straight back to my roots and my hometown of Brisbane. And um, one woman that's hard to pass by is um, Ingrid Richards. And I thought, all the projects of Richards and Spence would be quite familiar with the community in Melbourne. So I thought this would be one to share with you all. Um, Ingrid Richards uh, has been such an integral part of the development within James Street in Fortitude Valley. Um, and sort of linking back to what Emma was saying, and it, it took a lot of time, investment and vision to get James Street to be the precinct that it is today. Back in 2003, when Ingrid was working at Cox Rainer at the time, um, the initial uh, project, which was James Street Market, was uh, realised and basically 
the issues that it originally had on site was that the site was quite narrow and skinny and the client was worried that it wouldn't bring customers into the site to, you know, purchase market goods and fresh produce. Um, so the idea that they had initially for this one building was to create a market square. Um, so there were these two buildings encompassed by one roof and that brought together a market hall and a street shopping experience. What's interesting is that was finished in 2003 and it wasn't until 2012 that um, Richards and Spence, with Ingrid's leading, Ingrid leading the way, um, their 19 Wendu Street, which you can see uh, just on the lower bottom of that diagram there, came to fruition. Um, and that took on that same design ethos that they had of creating a market square and a, and a uh, shopping experience on the street. What was interesting that what was interesting is that the customers and the streetscape within and between these two buildings were open 24-7. So there wasn't a, a, you know, a, a, a problem of bringing people into behind and off the actual street frontage where the car parks were. And then as, as their client relationship grew, um, they went over to James Street side and uh, brought in Brickworks Design um, and another 19 James Street actually as well, um, which has fabulous restaurants and retail places. It's the place to be seen if you're in Brisbane. Um, and the then, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finishing off... Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Queenslander, I'm yeah. allowed to say that. <laughs> but... It, Finishing off, I guess, the key moment, which is what the image on the left, on the right shows, is um, on the right-hand side is the Kalal Hotel, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Um, and that also embraced a similar design ethos, um, bringing in the square and then letting the streetscape of that building connect in with the other additions that have accumulated over that period of time. So when you think back to where Ingrid originally started back in 2003 and in 2018 the Kalal Hotel was completed, that's quite a long time. And I think what's really interesting is that each of those buildings that she added into that program of space on those particular blocks um, had a vision of adaptability and it being flexible spaces to allow each building to change and still work as another building was being demolished or if another building was being constructed. But eventually, that entire design ethos of having a square and having the 24-hour street, streetscape brought together this precinct that is booming and, like I said, place to be. You'll see me there if I'm on Brisbane having a cocktail on a Saturday night, for sure. <laughs> um, but I think it's really interesting to have buildings created that are... Uh, for the purpose of being lifelong and being flexible spaces that are thinking about the future of what that space would be and how it can adapt to different typologies being within that space. So I thought it was a really good example of how time and investment and vision um, from Ingrid as, 
and being a woman, um, how that has transformed one particular area, which I think is quite rare as well to be able to do as an architect. You never really get a whole block that you get to transform um, with little insertions here and there. Um, I thought it was a really good example of how one woman with, um, you know, her ally, Adrian, um, creating and changing a particular area of the city in Brisbane. Excellent. I think that's a... I think that's a very good segue to you, Felicity. Thank you. So I'd just like to begin by also acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we all meet today and where people watching from home are located. Um, so for us, it's the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. And I extend my respects to elders past and present and any elders or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us tonight. Um, as a, a cultural heritage practitioner, that's, that's important. Um, for me to acknowledge, um, particularly talking about the history of our city and the people who have transformed it. So it's interesting to have listened to um, the other speakers um, tonight who have kind of spoken quite a lot about public space and um, the experience that we have um, of public space in the city. Um, but the space that I'm going to be talking about is more of a private space. Um, and for me, it's a, it's a, you know, relatively small example. It's not city shaping, but it's something that I think raises bigger themes. Um, so just to set the scene, as a heritage advocate, I aspire to further the recognition of women's contributions to our history and to our built environment, um, particularly uh, acknowledging and celebrating buildings which have been designed by women. And in Melbourne, these are relatively rare um, in a historic sense. Um, as part of a recent campaign to protect a house which was designed by um, a woman broadcaster and design enthusiast in, um, in Brighton, uh, we found um, as part of our research that only two places in our state heritage register was solely attributed to women architects or designers out of 2,300 plus places, and that less than 10 um, were protected under heritage overlays, which is the most common way of protecting heritage places in Victoria. And there are more than 180,000 places in Victoria that are protected um, under heritage overlays. So um, I think that historians have made real strides and have been working for generations to raise awareness of women's histories and women's stories. Um, but they can also be embodied in the fabric of our buildings. And this isn't always evident without documentation or interpretation. So it really requires a concerted effort to uncover these, these stories. And these types of social histories aren't necessarily well protected through our existing systems of classifying heritage places that really privilege architectural and aesthetic um, attributes over historic and social attributes. So I wanted to just tell the story of one place in Melbourne CBD that was designed by a woman architect and also the story of another woman architect um, in the current day who has also contributed to this place. 
And that place is just across the road. Um, afterwards, you can go and have a look over um, and see it over there in Ridgeway Place. It's the Lyceum Club, which is not in a prominent location in the hodl grid. It's kind of tucked away in a laneway and most people probably don't know about it. But I think it's a really significant heritage place. So it was established, the Lyceum Club um, was based on a club um, originally um, established in the UK that was a um, club for professional women who were educated um, and wanted a place to share ideas um, and really um, congregate and collaborate um, and have, have a space um, to meet. So it was founded in 1912 and the membership increased gradually over the decades until the post-war period when they really reached a critical mass and made the decision to purchase a property um, in Ridgeway Place there. To design the building, they engaged Ellison Harvey, an architect who was the first woman to receive a Diploma of Architectural Design from the Melbourne University Atelier in 1938. She was the first woman to be elected as a Fellow of the Royal Victorian Institute of Architects and was made partner of her firm, which was Stevenson and Turner, in the same year. She specialised in hospital design and um, was instrumental in a number of modernist hospitals um, that were erected in Melbourne and also in Sydney and other places um, in regional Victoria. So it's a modernist, a very modest, modernist building, modest, modernist building. And what I think is also really significant about it is that all of the interiors were designed by women as well that were associated with the Lyceum Club. And I think it's really important to recognise that, you know, while it is important to recognise women's history, that this is a history of privileged women. These were privileged women, um, primarily white women who, um, you know, were part of this club and established this club and a level of education and, you know, social mobility was required to be a part of this. So while it's an important story, it's certainly not an inclusive story of women's histories, but still um, an important place um, for women to, um, I guess, gather and um, progress intellectual ideas and support each other. Added to that in the past couple of years has been another layer which has been added by Kirsten Thompson and her practice, Kirsten Thompson Architects. This was an effort by the Lyceum Club to um, build its future, to, to provide a flexible space that can provide for the future of the organisation and be more relevant um, to new generations. And I think that what is really interesting about the building is that the addition is very respectful and it's almost in conversation with the original building. So there's this connection between the original architect and a leading architect of our time who has left a layer on that building um, but hasn't necessarily um, overtaken that original intent. So as a building, it really, to me, demonstrates the emergence of women in the design profession in the post-war period. Um, but it's also a really wonderful example of how you can adapt a historic building 
for a new use. And something that's extraordinary about this building to me is that up until recently, it hasn't had any form of heritage protection. It's a really significant building, it's really rare, but it just has fallen through the cracks and hasn't been recognised until the Hoddlegrid Heritage Review, um, which Emma has been <laughs> instrumental in bringing about, which has taken a really progressive view at looking at the rich social histories that are part of the fabric of our cities, looking beyond just the bricks and mortar to those stories and ensuring that when we protect our heritage, we're being more open and inclusive as part of that. So recommend everyone grab a copy of Kirsten Thompson's new monograph. It's absolutely incredible and um, really shows, I guess, her role in transforming the city through her projects as well. Can I just add one teeny little little tidbit to that? I saw Kirsten Thompson present that at the um, presentations to juries a couple of years ago at the Institute of Architects. Um, it's kind of the pre-thing they do for their awards. And she talked about how they, she borrowed the views from the Melbourne Club, which is the, um, the men's club that's just here. And I thought that was quite wonderful. I just wanted to yeah. sneak that in. <laughs> Excellent. Can I, I sneak something in too? Yes. This is bizarre, try. right? Go. So James Street... When I moved back from London with my babe in arms and moved back to Australia for six months, just on maternity leave before I went back, was going to go back to London, which I never did, we moved into Tenerife in Brisbane. And it was, I've got to say, it was a bit of a culture shock after six years in London. But James Street was my saviour. I was like this person who just hung around James Street. It's what you do. It's what you do. With the baby in pram chatting to anyone who would chat to me. This was in 2008 we moved back. Yeah, my son was born in 2008. So, yeah, 2008. And it was just the market then, so we, I'd, I'm intrigued to see all this other stuff. And then the Lyceum, all right, another, oh, this is my history. Um, when I first moved to Melbourne, um, a dear friend of mine who's a Melbourneite who I'd met in London, her mother invited me to the club for an afternoon tea. Um, so I got a baby, well, I, got my, actually I, asked, I think I asked my husband to look after the baby. No, I didn't. I got, I, uh, he was working. So we got someone to look, I came in, and it was the most formal thing I had ever been to in my entire life. And I just thought, wow, this is Melbourne. And of course, it's not Melbourne, but it was a very particular slice of Melbourne. Yeah. I've lived believe in Melbourne 20 years. No one has ever invited me to the last <laughs> I feel like they should be targeting us as potential I think members. They should be. <laughs> and all of us. I can't afford it. <laughs> yeah. Any of us from Melbourne, Felicity? Nope, I'm from northern New South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we are, <laughs> transforming the city. Anyway, <laughs> thank God. Okay, so I suspect I don't, I'm not actually needed here at all, but anyway, I'm going to wrap it on. Um, 
so I've got four areas that I want to ask these people questions about, which are the four um, questions I wrote in 2015 with Karen. Um, and I kind of want to stick to that because I'm quite interested in this kind of accumulation of things over time. But I suspect I just need to throw a word and you guys will run and I can sit here quietly, which would be very good. So motivation. And I think we need to, look, we need to preface all of this which by saying, of course, that any group of women is, is, is a very diverse group with very diverse experiences. And, and, and using the term woman, we're inclusive of um, trans women, other, other kinds of gender identities, very different experiences, investments, backgrounds. This isn't just all about you know, those of us who are white and middle class. Um, so let's just make that caveat. Um, but then I'd like to also just talk about motivation because when, when Karen and I first talked about this idea of the series, we were interested in the fact that um, many, that many, many women had really had fundamental roles in shaping the city, but that was not always um, in the ways one might expect because they didn't necessarily, women as a group, it's a very inclusive, diverse group, didn't necessarily have access to the same modes um, uh, historically that men did. And, and I know, she, I remember Karen talking about, you know, school parent-parent groups as a way where women first got their kind of political skills and then moved into other things, representative roles and, you know, became mayor or whatever. But, that, but the, the, the ways in which one might access influence are partly gendered. Um, and that the motivations that one might have for trying to change the city may also be partly gendered. Um, so let's talk about motivation. Are, are, can we identify some shared motivations among some of the women who've been active in transforming the city? But I also wonder if you just might, you're all as yourselves city shapers, might reflect on some of your own motivations um, and whether you think that your own motivations might be part of some kind of shared agenda. And then I've also got this thing of who do we speak for and work on behalf of. So that's just a whole lot, and I'm just going to throw it at you. And George is raring to go. <laughs> um, I feel motivation, and I, this is my personal experience. And when I first studied, started studying architecture and became interested in architecture, the motivation, and I think it was gen it's shared for all who begin architecture, is just wanting to add value to your city. And for me, as I gradually um, finished masters, went on to work for seven years, and then suddenly changing into media, um, and also learning more about um, my culture, um, the motivation of adding value to my city remained, but layers were added, so wanting to find voice for Indigenous women, um, but then wanting to share that, I guess, through media. Um, so the motivation definitely starts underlying as just wanting to add value to my city and make it a place where I felt really proud of what surrounded me, but also quite safe and um, felt that the surroundings represented my myself. Excellent. Going in a line. You can do whatever you like. 
So um, it's an interesting one about motivations because I do think they change over time depending, again, on your personal experience and stage in life or what you're interested in at that point in time. So, but I guess I've always come from a very um, particular perspective about, well, being a landscape architect originally, um, about natural systems and making a city and, a, you know, a, its landscape to work really effectively together to make wonderful places for people, because that's, that's what we're driving, right? We're, like, you don't have cities without people, uh, and people should serve, uh, sorry, cities should serve people well. Um, I am really motivated about inclusion and about making change in the city long-term to ensure all people, regardless of anything that might, you know, that they can access the city and engage in the city and feel welcome in a city. Um, and this is, you know, across health, education, housing, whatever it might be. So what can we put in place to make sure cities are mo the most inclusive they can be um, and welcome all to enjoy in what cities can give? Cities can be very exclusive. Um, there are so many places in this, in this city where you need to have money to dine. But if we can make sure our wonderful public spaces are accessible and open to people and people can, you know, be themselves and do what they want to do in those spaces, that's the city I want to have. I guess through life as well, you know, once I had kids, I remember when I started architecture at QT. No, QT. Sorry, UQ. I started architecture at QT. That's fine. <laughs> but anyway, UQ. Yeah, sorry. God, look at the snobbery in, in our Brisbane. Woo. I know. Um, <laughs> Uh, UQ, I remember one of the first projects we did was around accessibility, um, and this was t through the lens of um, uh, disabled access. Um, and I remember being really challenged by this because I hadn't ever really thought it through, which I'm embarrassed to say, right? Um, and it was, it was a really challenging project, and I learnt so much, um, which continues today. I was only last week in a disability access committee discussion where I just like, oh my, so we need to do something about that. We need to do something about that. But until you know, you can't do anything about it. Um, but when, it, when I had to start bringing my child into childcare in the city, I realised how inaccessible this place was. This is before I worked at the City of Melbourne, so I didn't really have as much agency in that. Um, but it was only until it affects you directly, you, you know, and that's what I encourage everyone to do, is always put yourself in someone else's shoes um, and consider how they perceive the city and do everything you can to make it accessible to all. Um, the other thing I wanted to raise was safety. Um, and that's something I think that I'm sure was discussed um, at the previous sessions. Um, because I think safety for women in the city is different to safety for all. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just something that's in the top of mind, public transport, um, how people feel if they're going home late after this venue tonight, after we've had a big chat, I'm sure we'll all be going home in different modes. And how do you feel safe and make sure uh, that this, you know, you can get home safe tonight. So those are some of the things that I think about a lot, but most importantly, a city for all. It's awesome to hear you both talk about that, and I think what I'm going to say kind of builds on on that concept of adding value to the city, but also making um, inclusive cities for all people. And what really motivates me, and what has motivated um, many of the people who I really admire um, in urban planning and in community activism and advocacy, is that sense of community and connecting with surrounding communities and working towards a purpose that has benefit um, for the most possible people. So, um, you know, working to advocate for the community's voice 
um, in a world that is, um, you know, dominated by commercial interests and political interests. And I think that that, um, you know, I think of great um, people like Jane Jacobs, um, people that I work with who are here tonight um, with us who work in that space that I think um, share that passion for community advocacy. And, um, you know, sometimes for me that's about thinking about what I value and, and what I would like to see reflected in the world around me and something that's really motivated my work in heritage advocacy has been just looking around me and just thinking, well, where is my history and identity reflected in this landscape? And if I can't see my identity as a, you know, a privileged person, then, you know, how many other people are also, you know, not, not being able to see their identities reflected in the landscape? So that's um, something that's really drawn me um, to advocacy for... Um, recognising women in the built environment. But something um, that I'm really passionate about more broadly is that, that community engagement, doing things for a purpose, um, a collective purpose. Tanya, apart from loving a good protest, <laughs> um, well, it looks like there's a definite common theme across all of us here. We're really interested in the idea that cities are places for people and cities are places or towns or you know, wherever it might be. Our built environment is our places where we build community. And I think I'd like to add a layer to that, though. I'm really interested in um, the kind of big scale of the city, but also the fine grain of the city. So I believe that we live in certain places and we form attachment to certain places and we feel we belong in certain places and we're welcomed. Uh, we feel welcome in certain places um, because of attentions to little details. Um, so it might be thinking about the heritage building that we might lose because there aren't that many of them in the city and the loss of, you know, one amazing building that anchors a place actually is a huge loss to a city or it might be thinking about how we design tactile indicators in the most effective way to help people navigate the city, whether that makes it feel welcoming. And I think these things, for me, are really really important and um, I think COVID has really highlighted that we need to take a lot of care with them because the things that provide the uniqueness of the city and the atmosphere of the city can potentially get lost if we don't care. Um, things get whittled away really slowly and a city that is pragmatically designed and market-led um, for me is a city without a soul and one of the things I love about Melbourne and actually a lot of Australian cities is there are places where you can find the soul of the city. Um, so that I think really motivates me to kind of keep talking about the city and why it's important that it's designed well and why it's important that we care about our heritage places and communicate that well because I think the more people that know, the more public knowledge there is around the, the design of the built environment, um, the better our cities will be. I think we are as one. <laughs> so I want to now shift maybe to the discussion of um, strategies and tactics. Um, because as, as we were saying before, not everybody has access to the same uh, levels of power or you know, whatever it is. And, and certainly at Parlour, when we talk about 
Gender equity, we, we kind of like to point, every, we say everybody has agency, but we don't all have the same agency. And I would say that's exactly the same in relation to how we affect our built environment. Um, so from protest, and, and I have to say, when I was putting this panel together, I was trying to make a group of people who had used different kinds of strategies to shape the city from protest to being in the belly of the beast, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, you know, and writing and, and, and staging public discussions and the, and the heritage. And, you know, there's this lot... I mean, people think heritage is kind of... There often seems to be an idea that heritage is conservative, but actually so much activism comes out of heritage. So um, in some ways you're sort of straddling between the belly of the beast and, you know, I mean, goodness, the heritage system is arcane and unusual. Um, <laughs> But it's also a really this kind of place of protest. So it's... Um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so from protest to participation as elective, from elected representatives, policy-making, design projects, um, how, I guess the question is partly about how, how you have found um, the levers to make change in these kind of different environments, but also about... Um, what levers are out there? What are the places that we can go to affect change? And it's not always the most obvious place. So I think you, the example you showed of of, um, of a fairly straightforward practitioner model, but using it in a very um, unusual way. Like, how did she manage to corral all of those people to keep... I don't know. She's vastly good at selling the yeah, dream. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, anyway, I will stop rabbiting on because strategies and tactics, talk to me. Who wants to go first? Emma's saying I've got to start because I'm down this end and yep. then we're going backwards. <laughs> Apparently. Also, you're quite good at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're organised, maybe, or Emma's organised and corralling us. Um, <laughs> so, tactics. Uh, let me think. Um, it was actually really, I suppose, interesting, the Fed Square campaign, because we were on the side of the community activists. Um, and you start to realise, I suppose, uh, in, the idea of, you know, what's a, what, what is a heritage activist? Everybody's going, actually, we're going through very, very similar issues. We feel that we've been rendered powerless in the face of the planning process. Um, when the decision to put an Apple store in Fed Square came about, uh, the planning minister invoked their, his authority, which meant that there was no recourse for public comment or public exhibition. So essentially, people and the community were rendered voiceless in that. Um, and over the course of our campaign, we started to realise that what we were trying to do was to give people their voices back. And I think one of the really interesting things that happens nowadays is that the, the ability to speak in public space uh, and in public has become more democratic in some ways. Of course, there's always the ability to shout in public, hence every now and then we have to leave Twitter alone, well alone, and Facebook. <laughs> But, um, but they're really powerful tools that everybody has access to. And so you can make change, but you have to play the long game. Um, it's, not, it's not just as simple as opposing something. You actually have to kind of oppose it with care and reflection and research and all of these other things and work out how you can help build a collective voice around your issue 
um, to affect change. Now, we were lucky. We managed to create change with the help of the National Trust, I might add, and the heritage process. Oh, my God, that was an interesting one to go through, but it was fascinating and wonderful. And if you ever get to go to a heritage hearing, I highly recommend it. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> not <laughs> Felicity's yeah, going, it was awesome. don't get a huge audience to these things. But, um, but it's about how you kind of, you know, I think, you know, one of these strategies or tactics is about building a collective voice because I do believe that we're stronger together um, and also that change is slow and bringing people along for the ride so they accept change is also slow. So you just have to be a little bit patient sometimes. Thanks, Tanya. Um, yeah, we were really proud of, of how the heritage process enabled the community to have a voice when that that process had been shut down. So um, I think heritage, the, the heritage lens provides um, a mechanism to really have a discussion about the, the value of a place to a community um, and how those values can be protected into the future. So working with you on that campaign was definitely a life changer. Um, and you're a great inspiration as a, as a community leader. Um, I just also, but just also reflecting back on motivation and also tactics, I just wanted to acknowledge the last couple of weeks of absolute putrid um, discourse that's been happening in the media and amongst our politicians about women and about the agency of women within their workplaces and their right to safe workplaces. Um, and work practices. As someone who is, you know, an engaged person who is connected with society and has a conscience, I find these um, discussions very disturbing and this, how it sort of revealed this structural misogyny that still really dictates the, the world that we live in. And I think that you know, we do make pro progress and progress is slow. Um, but it has been really disheartening as someone who is an advocate and an activist to see how far there is still to go um, and to see the most powerful people in our nation to just um, be so disrespectful of women and women's rights. And I found that to be really emotionally draining. I think... Um, as a motivation um, and as, as something to harness um, in, in trying to create change, I think that frustration and anger can be very powerful and it can be an enabling force and it can be a force that brings people together uh, to work towards a common goal and to work towards change. But it can also be really disempowering and, and disabling as well, just really exhausting um, to, you know, as Tanya said earlier, be doom-scrolling on Twitter um, and seeing, you know, some of the stuff that's, that's happening in the media and our political discourse. So it's really um, affirming and inspiring to be here tonight with a group of people that I really respect and, and that includes the audience as well um, that's really passionate um, about gender equity um, and really equity for all people, um, no matter what their identity is. Um, but I just wanted to acknowledge that 
you know, that anger and frustration and just being sick of this shit, really, <laughs> essentially. Like, why are we still protesting this shit? And so I think protest is really a powerful tool and I'm hoping that the march yeah. on Monday is very well attended yeah. um, and is an opportunity for people um, to connect and vent some of that collective anger as well. I was um, at an event this morning. I hate International Women's Day breakfast. Oh, my God. But anyway, it was a really great event. Um, Wendy McCarthy, 80, talking about productive anger and how you really have to channel it for change. Yeah. And also, like, just going, I can't believe we're still here. But I think that thinking about how we can make... I mean, you were angry. You wouldn't have done the whole Fed Square thing if you weren't, you know, ropeable. No, I think as well... Um, <laughs> I remember. You know, I think, you know, we know there are studies that show us that worldwide and in Australia that we are at our lowest political ebb. Like, trust in politicians is at its lowest. And it's because people don't feel like they are being listened to and they don't feel like they have enough meaningful avenues um, to be heard. And, you know, and that's, I think that's where the, dis, you know, that disillusionment and despair comes in because you just feel like when what's happened recently happens, you feel like nobody is listening and nobody has been listening <laughs> for a long time and you think that there's been change but then you just get this crap. And so I think finding ways to act within that, finding ways to move forward. Now it might, um, one of the things I was going to say before about motivation is I get ranty and angry at a lot of things, um, as some of you who know me know. <laughs> but I also don't feel that I have the capacity or the expertise to necessarily take on all of those things. Like, you know, I get angry at inequity and climate change and how we house our refugees, but I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an engineer and I'm not a climate scientist, but I am an architect um, with an interest in the built environment and people. And so what are the ways I can actually channel... Um, my skills to then actually produce something that might affect, you know, how we experience the built environment. And so I think it's really important to just kind of hold on to that. And even if it's like a really small thing, just to do it because it makes you feel better. Uh, and nothing else does, because doom scrolling on Twitter really doesn't. It's not a good tactic. <laughs> not Bad. a good strategy. Bad strategy. I just, strategy, I just wanted to add on to um, what Felicity was saying earlier, where Everything that's happened in the past couple of weeks has been really disheartening, but I think um, <laughs> what is really upsetting is when it's someone who you think you know who comes out and you think you're in a safe environment and you're, you find out that you're not, which was what we saw across um, the news events of the past week. So I think sort of looping back to strategy um, and how we make change when you feel like you might not be able to do anything if you're just the one person. Um, I kind of look around this room today and I see mentors who are my mentors and then they've got their own mentors in this room and there's this thread that I can see just from having a conversation and building a relationship with women who are powerful and do incredible things. Um, I found that strategy to be extremely powerful and helpful. And it's, that's how you know when something like this happens and you get so infuriated that you can just talk to them and then suddenly you've got this pool of women who can bind together and use that anger and channel that anger to make change. 
And that's just a way I feel that you could be, make change with a small little drop of yourself being an individual, but then it actually impacts greater, um, the greater community or your greater friendship groups or women who surround you. So as a strategy, I think there's real power in real mentorship, not um, what we've seen in the news. Um, so I hope that everyone can find that person um, and find their champion to help them move forward and help change the city and transform the city and, and not just the built environment, but in the culture that we see today. Goodness me, it's hard to follow up with that. Um, so I call it about, I, I talk about it quite a bit about Jesus exhausting to maintain the rage. Because I, I do, and I've got some work colleagues here who know how passionate I am about certain things. But the most important thing is knowing when to fight the fight and knowing how to channel that rage positively and productively into action. Um, and you know, as I get older, I probably, I don't get less angry by any stretch, but I definitely, I definitely manage it more effectively. And I think, look, I've got a 10-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son, um, and so we're going through some seriously interesting conversations at the moment. Um, and it's a really hard time, right, to talk about this stuff, but I am bloody committed that my daughter will never see anything like that in her workplace. Um, because she will stand up and she will be the boldest kid uh, because we've had the conversations. But that's not... I should talk about urban tactics. So, um, look, I, like the City of Melbourne, and I, just to say, I do trust politicians of local government. Not, you know... I do I too. feel extremely lucky to work for the city and there's many local government people at municipal level who are just the most extraordinary committed people who are just so, they want to make change and they want to make change and they listen and they push us as the, as the organisation to do more, be bold and all of those things. And it can be a bit tiring, but it's really important. So local government, I'm going to sell it. It's a bloody great place to work. Um, and, you know, you can influence, maybe, um, but you can really influence change to real people. So I was just going to just reflect on some tactics because that's what you asked me to reflect on. We've gone there. Oh, my God. It's, I could say so much about what's gone in the last two weeks, but I'm so exhausted by it. So, look, evidence is everything, right? So if you're able to define the problem, because that's one of the things that does frustrate me about urban change is sometimes we define the problem wrongly and then we have a tactic or a solution that doesn't actually address the problem. So data, stats analysis, work out what the problem is, listen to the community. That's the one thing, I, oh, not the one thing, there's so much that's great, but listening to the community, there is not one community meeting that I don't go to where I just, I mean, everyone that I go to, I go, wow, I just had this mind leap of, geez, thank you for that. That is the best contribution that I've had today. Like, you know, you just can't, you cannot overestimate what you're gonna hear when you go out and talk directly to people. Um, so define the problem well which, you know, we all do in our pro public projects and our projects on the ground. Learn from other places. There will always be somewhere that's tried something before. Don't be arrogant to think that we can't learn from those places. The context might be different and you can translate it, but always look elsewhere to benchmark, think about what other cities have done. Is that relevant to us? Could we do it better? Because, you know, it's good to be competitive. Um, be bold, be propositional, always stretch because you're probably going to have to come back a bit from where you want to end up. 
because that's the reality of, you know, and democracy um, and really um, listening and working out the balance of how you're going to work something through. Um, be open to challenge. Like, that's the other thing that I've learned probably more so in this role than any other role is that you don't have all the... An- <laughs> I never thought I had all the answers, but, but, but you also need to be easy with challenge and people not agreeing with you because then you can work out how we're going to manage that and how we're going to make a great outcome in that context. Um, And also the power of piloting. Um, It's really interesting for me that temporary solutions seem to go through really fast. And, you know, you're always on the way to something permanent. But pilot, test, see how it is. And this, I guess, in human-centred design, you iterate, you work it through, you make it better, and you're always listening to what people have to say. And then the other thing is just about transparent process. And this is something I've worked at state government as well as local. I love local government because every decision is made in public. So you put forward a report, it gets absolutely, you know, people come in and submit. You have to be ready for any question. Uh, And the politicians, you know, debate it and make a decision. In state, and, you know, there's probably good reason for this, but I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) You know, there's a lot of things made that affect us all that none of us have much to say on. And that worries me because the future we want to have is one we shape, right? Um, and so, look, really get behind local government, like local decision making, because then that can have impact more broadly um, uh, at the state level and then federally. God help us, but you know that's where we are. So, but we would love some money to come into Melbourne from the federal government uh, to help us through in our COVID recovery. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, I'm fairly conscious of time and the fact that we may want to um, continue going and um, eating up all that food so I don't have to take it home. Um, So I've got three more topics on my little sheet here. Um, One of which, but I think some of them have already been covered. Um, One of which is about impact, which I think we've been talking about the whole day, whole uh, evening. So... um, about the kinds of, you know, what has come out of these kinds of moves and actions. I, th- I feel like we've been talking about that. Does anyone else have anything else they want to say about my question about impact that they were previously supplied with? No. Excellent. Moving on. Lessons from the past. Um, I think understanding, and again, this is, is probably something that, that Karen and I were very interested in when we set this up, you know, a long time ago, was understanding these different kinds of um, ways and means to uh, effect change can tell us where we might go into the future. Um, But often the roles of women disappear from the collective memory, exactly as you've been saying it, Um, particularly the, you know, I mean, we've been writing women into Wikipedia too, and unless you kind of fit some particular version of notability, you kind of disappear. So what do we need to remember about um, specifically the ways in which uh, women as a diverse and inclusive group have um, impacted the city that might be different because of their kind of access to power or not? You don't all have to answer, but if you've got something, 
Well, I might start just um, as a, a heritage practitioner and someone who works with storytelling um, about histories and about um, recognising the built environment. I think recognising the role of women um, in history is really important and the work that Parla and other other organisations and people do um, to write women into history through um, avenues such as Wikipedia and... Um, contributing new pieces for the Australian Dictionary of Biography um, and things like that are really important. I was really struck um, when I was doing some research on Marion Mahoney Griffin, who's one of the most important, um, one of the most important architects in, in Melbourne's history and one of the first female architects um, practising in Melbourne. She's only a footnote in her husband's Australian Dictionary of Biography entry. So... You know, just, I think, um, achieving some equity in the way we recognise history is something that's really important and something that can inform us going forward, um, you know, respecting the past and respecting and learning from the people that came before us is something I think that is really important. I just need to do a shout-out here for Virginia Mannering, who's gone through every entry on Wikipedia that mentions Marion and mentions Walter and checked every source and changed Walter and his wife, for example, to Walter and Marion, um, and written her into many entries on buildings where there's documented evidence that she was involved. And Virginia has been really fascinated. We've all been writing new entries about people we think should be in there. Virginia has been really interested in those very fine-grained changes which really shift impressions. So... Um, uh, Wikipedia is now a much better place to find out about Marion, probably, than the dictionary. <laughs> well, I remember going out to Foliota one year. Is that Foliota? The little house with the interlocking bricks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the plaque. The, yes, knitlock bricks. The plaque out there, I don't think, well, when I went, didn't mention Marion. So plaques on buildings are an interesting thing to think about in terms of how we get, I suppose, erased from... how women get erased from history as well. I'm not going to talk about history. I'm going to talk about the future just quickly. Excellent. Um, the next I'll start with history. I've been incredibly privileged, like a lot of people, um, I'm sure, here, who've been surrounded by very strong professional women who've driven city change, uh, London, Glasgow, uh, Melbourne... Um, I've been so lucky. Um, we have a Lord Mayor who's a, a woman who is just doing an incredible job and is so um, passionate about this city. Um, but I also work with, and, and you know, I work with a lot of people across the city of Melbourne and externally across state government. And when I met, I, I was in a meeting today where someone stopped and said, let's just look around this Zoom room, which, God, I can't wait till that's all over, and said, let's just look at these people in this room. And I felt sorry for the two men in the room because <laughs> what she was actually saying was, look at all these incredible women, you know, um, and, you know, and we had a reflection on how rubbish everything's... And the poor men in the room were just like, oh, guys, I'm sorry. And I'm like, well, yeah, should be. Um, but... <laughs> But I just, I just feel really uh, positive about the future. And I guess as well, as I said, I've got a 10-year-old and her friends, geez, they're ferocious. They are ferocious. And, uh, and look out, world, like we have a generation coming behind us who will, will not question about where they sit because 
They're, well, they've got angry mothers, right? Um, and ragey mothers who will push them and push them. Well, that's not true. But um, I just wanted to say, I just want to acknowledge some fantastic women. And Tanya Walkenberg, it's not me who leads the heritage team, but, you know, I champion it, but she does the extraordinary work um, along with extraordinary women around. In fact, I think the whole heritage team is women. Um, and, gee, they have to fight the fight. If you think transport's contested heritage, oh, I never knew. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge, I guess, that I just feel really positive about this future, even though we are probably... What's that saying? It's always darkest before the dawn, right? Um, and we are... The dawn is about to break, and, geez, it's going to be wonderful, right? I agree. I completely agree. I'm really positive about the future too, seeing all of the women that I've gone through... Um, practice with, uh, education with as well. But then I guess if we think to look back to the past and what we can learn and, and going on to what you were saying, Felicity, about making sure women are acknowledged, well, let's not repeat a Denise Scott Brown um, and in the Australian gold medal for architects and let's get more women um, recognised and achieving the gold medal in Australia. Absolutely. All right. Okay, we've already covered my next topic as well, but I'm just going to whip through it quickly and then we can all go you know, hang over, go over there and talk to each other again. I'm very excited about that. Okay, so what are the key topics? We've talked about this a lot, but how do we, uh, how do we continue to fight for slow, socially inclusive and equitable cities and what resources do we have at our disposal? And how might those in our audience, what might they do tomorrow to help change the city? So those, again, I mean, too many questions, I know, but what do we leave with? Where are we going? Um, I think social media is actually a really good resource recently for sharing um, ideas and opinions and, uh, I guess, anger or protesting. Um, I think there's a fine line between using social media as just, you know, saying whatever it is and not, not actually having any reform. But when you have the relationships that you develop with your community and your network and you feel very strongly about it, it happens, change happens. Carla wouldn't have existed without social exactly. media and the yeah. internet, absolutely. It, it's such a powerful resource yeah. and um, it's really exciting to see what is happening, particularly in COVID as well. You still felt connected. Um, so I think that's a really powerful resource. Emma, how do we use the city? I <laughs> know, oh, I was going to talk about social media. Um, I have a serious, like, I mean, I, I, there's many benefits to social media, but I just think we've got to own our views and own our opinions because while it's anonymous, I mean, you know, you should see some of the things that come up on City of Melbourne feet and you don't know who they are and they can say whatever they want and it can be very damaging to a lot of people. And I just think in the same way you, when you get a bank account, you prove who you are and you say who you are and you stand by who you are or else you go get a bank account. I don't think you should get a social media account unless you stand who you are. And then you can say whatever you want and that will have ramifications, you know? There's consequence to those actions. So this is my... Social media has wonderful... <laughs> when it's curated and thoughtful and trying to progress something, but when it is just mean and un, unhinged and uh, divisive and anonymous, we've got problems. And this is... It's real and we've got to do something about it. And so there's my old woman thing where I'm just like, oh, you need to sign up before you can get that account. I need to know who you are. <laughs> But it's real, right? This is, you should, some of the stuff and what we're playing into, I mean, don't even go near any commentary at the moment about what's happening in Parliament because, oh my goodness, it's not going to make us feel any better. Um, but there are hashtags like 
angry in and, uh, you know, uh, oh, I can't, oh, I looked at someone and just thought, oh, God, I just thought I could get you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyway. I'd love to get questions too. Yes, okay, sorry. Oh, can I do quickly? No, you go. Um, I just did want to add to that because I actually think the way we make change is through participation. So we have to participate to make change. Like, there's no just talking. There is only participation and that's the way we move forward. And this is a bit specific, but what really interests me at the moment is the Local Government Act and the Local Government Act now requiring community consultation, meaningful community consultation. Now, it talks deliberative about... Deliberative engagement. No, no, it talks about deliberative engagement, which I have an issue with, um, because I actually think there are other forms of democracy. But there's participatory, for, there's participatory democracy as well, and I think that's more... a little bit more inclusive and a little bit more interesting, because it encapsulates placemaking, community placemaking. It encapsulates all kinds of other things that aren't just formal processes. Um, like, you know, the kind of Participate Melbourne website. It actually encapsulates more kinds of community participation if we think more broadly about it. So I actually think we have... Firstly, I think, you know, I think we do... We are participating more. I think participation is building. There are more ways we can participate, but I think there'll be some really interesting things if we can think creatively about how we participate in the shaping of our cities and councils can get on board with thinking creatively about thinking about that. I think there could be some quite amazing stuff that happens. Well, Tanya's just said kind of what I was going to say in a much more articulate way. Um, participate in local government activities. I am a total local government nerd. I think that local government has more of an impact on our day-to-day -day lives than any other level of government. And as Emma said, it's really a process that invites people to participate. So um, get involved in community engagement, be part of contributing to that evidence base that then leads to policy decisions go to one of your council meetings, they're all on Zoom now, so it's super easy. Um, watch your local government representatives debating, contribute submissions on issues that are, um, are close to you. But that is a really, I think, um, accessible form of engagement that can potentially have a significant impact. But when you write your submissions, what I'd encourage you to do <laughs> is nice. to start with the positives. <laughs> and what you like about the strategy and the amendment, and then go into the things you'd like to change, because then that helps us get things, you know, to make that change. When we just get angry, uh, like, oh, you know, that's fine, you can always say what you would like to say, but I would like to know that we've done some good stuff in, in that process. <laughs> Felicity's really good at it. She comes to Future Melbourne and she says, this is a wonderful piece of work. However, <laughs> and I'm like, Keep going. I've had a lot of practice. Keep pushing us. Um, I was just going to say, uh, also, I'm, when I was working back up in Brisbane, you had the ability to go online onto the council website and, and see what buildings were being proposed as well in your um, suburb or other suburbs. Um, so you could filter through the development applications and get a real understanding of how your city was transforming. Um, and working in an architecture practice, sometimes there were challenges. Some people didn't want something to go ahead, but I guess that's part of the whole process of transforming the city. It's always in flux. And so, um, yeah, if that's something you're interested in looking at, I'm sure there's a Melbourne version I'm not yet certain about, four weeks in, but I'd give that a look yes, at as there well. Is. <laughs> there is? Thank you. <laughs> well, I think this goes to Tanya's point too, that you've been making for some time that architects are citizens too. 
and that, that if first, not first. <laughs> exactly, that first yes. one has to be a first. citizen. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's open to the floor. Do we have um, Alison? That was very good of you. Here, let me give you this. I'm going to do the roving Mikey thing. Um, so I'm actually going to talk about a bloke to start with because today in Sydney was um, the memorial service for Jack Mundy. Um, so I just want to take a moment for everyone to... And if you don't know who Jack Mundy is, Google him. Um, talking about transformations of cities. And the interesting thing about Jack was that his power came from a group of women who were the first ones to alert the... Builders Labourers Federation to the potential demolition of Kelly's Bush. And also some of the key people in the Green Bands movement in Australia who suffered the most and lost their lives to that protest were women. Um, what I... So Jack's a hero of mine, won't go into that background, but one of the things I think is interesting about that is the unusual coalition that occurred in Sydney and then later in other cities in terms of protecting and transforming our cities. So we had the Builders Labourers Federation who were the big burly blokes who teamed up with a whole lot of women, basically, who didn't want their cities to be changed in the way that they were being promoted to be changed. And I'm, as a, as a lifelong activist, I've always been fascinated by unlikely coalitions and the power of unlikely coalitions. Um, so I'm just interested in your reflections on, and, and Tanya, I know you found some great unlikely coalitions in the Fed Square battle, um, and I'm always keen to hear of stories of those, and Felicity, I'm sure you've got some as well. Um, the other thing I also think is interesting at this point in time is that we have, because I, I did just Google it, we've got four, um, so um, Hobart, Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide have all got female Lord Mayors. I don't know anything about the Adelaide one, but I know the Hobart one, I know the Sydney one and I know the Melbourne one and they're all incredible women who are incredibly passionate about their cities with an amazing ability to form unlikely coalitions. So I wonder what reflections you have around unlikely coalitions and the power of them in transforming or positive transformations. Wish I'd thought of it. Um, well, I can't really. Oh, I can think. Of, okay, I can think of one unlikely coalition, but I do. I just want to speak to coalitions first. Um, I think what we didn't realise when we started the campaign, none of us had ever been activists before, or you know, and um, but we found there was kind of this ecology of activism which you participate in, which is really wonderful. So the National Trust was part of that. The City of Melbourne was part of that. Um, we had people who worked at Fed Square a long time ago. You know, there was lots of architects and all kinds of different people. And you start to understand that the Institute even played a, um, played a part as well, the Victorian chapter. And you start to understand that you can't do anything, but you can add your voice somewhere and with these other people, you're kind of more powerful and it's fantastic. Like, it's a really interesting thing to watch grow. Um, the one unlikely coalition, I suppose, that did come out of, of the Fed Square campaign was very early on, um, there was a Lord Mayoral by-election and this is when Sally Cap ran to be elected and I emailed all of the Lord Mayoral candidates and I said, what's your position on the Apple Store? Now, we didn't hear from four of them, 
But almost all of the others said, we don't want to see an Apple store in Fed Square except for Sally <laughs> And I wrote to Sally and I said, hey, I think I can change your mind. Now, she never replied at the time, but I met her through other means eventually. And, um, and I said to her, I think, I think, you know, we didn't agree on that, but I actually, you know, like I've watched what you've done at the City of Melbourne and I think we agree on public space and the city and how important these things are. And I ended up running on her ticket in the last council election. Now, I didn't get in. I was quite far down her ticket, but I think that was a really interesting thing. Like, these positions aren't fixed. People aren't only one thing. They're more than one thing. Um, and if we can kind of actually talk to other people rather than shout at other people through social media, um, you can often find common ground. And so I think that was really interesting. I think the um, example of the, the BLF and the, the absolute role that they had in shaping Sydney is such a good example. And um, obviously that was that kind of unlikely coalition and the activists that were working um, to protect Kelly's Bush sort of led to the establishment of the National Trust in New South Wales as well. And in Victoria, there were similar kind of conservation battles that were waged in, um, in Melbourne. And there were also green bands or black bands on building sites um, where buildings were proposed for demolition, including the Regent Theatre. And that, to a certain extent, some of that activism um, hasn't been so prominent in recent years. But one issue that brought together the most disparate group of stakeholders, um, in my experience as a heritage advocate, was the demolition of the Corkman Irish pub in Carlton. And what sort of led to that coalition was a really clear identification of, you know, what we all valued about that place and the outrage that we all shared um, about the way that it had been destroyed and the fact that we needed to respond to this. So... We invited representatives of the unions. We had students from the University of Melbourne. There were representatives of all of the peak industry bodies for architecture and, and landscape architecture um, that all came and planning to sort of join us in that discussion. And I think that it's that ability to, um, I guess, find that common ground is what really makes those partnerships successful. Unfortunately, in that case, we were stymied by... Um, the legislation, which really um, didn't enable us to get a good result on that site, but that's now led to um, amendments to legislation that are currently being debated in Parliament um, this week. So um, things, the wheels can move slowly, but um, if it's a collective effort, I think we can get results. I was just going to talk about, um, I wouldn't call it a coalition between um, elected representatives and the organisations such as City of Melbourne and our um, elected representatives because there is a line um, and that line's really important. So what I was going to say was within any, anything that you engage in, you need to define your role in a process and understand your agency within that process. So if I reflect on, for example, the Transport Strategy 2030, uh, Nick Francis Gilly was a councillor, a new councillor, and he always used to say, and I used to say to him, stop saying that, I only got 17 votes. And I'd say to him, can you stop saying that? You are now in power, 
you now need to use that power effectively. And he'd go, oh, all right. Because uh, his story is wonderful, actually, because he was trying to get the first Aboriginal woman elected to Melbourne City Council. And unfortunately, a few things went wrong with that process. So unfortunately, he was second on the ticket and he became a councillor. Um, but what I was going to say in that, we had political champions of the transport strategy in terms of they had no preconceived ideas of where it would end up, but they were there to challenge us consistently. Um, and we had to prove to them consistently as well why we were promoting and proposing certain things. And, you know, that was a long, it was a two-year journey, that one, um, and even toward right at the end. But I think that while I wouldn't call it a coalition because that would not be reflective of the relationship, I would say that it was a, and it wasn't a partnership either because it can't be, but it was a definite, oh, what would I say? Um, it's not symbiotic, it's like, it's kind of like a grapple to keep us propelling forward and making it better and being bolder and pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, and then sometimes that's really uncomfortable and really frustrating and it's tiring, but we got there and we, it was so much better. And so I'd just like to acknowledge Councillor Franskilly, who's no longer a councillor, Councillor Rohan Leppert, and the Lord Mayor, uh, Cap, was once she, got, once she really believed the evidence base and really she was the most incredible champion um, of that piece of work. So when you get that uh, synergy, I guess, between the bureaucracy and the, the political and elected representatives, um, you can make serious change. And you do, like some of the things, they were brave, like some of the things and, you know, the stuff they got, they had to stand in front of and say, no, nah, we're going this way. I, I just have to say there was a real courage involved in all of that. Uh, my experience is probably not so much with coalitions and policies, but I think I can relate um, a personal experience with the grappling between um, a particular project I was working up on in Brisbane, um, which uh, I can't actually reveal the name to you, but I can tell you that it was two parties. Um, we were representing an Indigenous community um, and we, the other stakeholder was also our client. So we had two different clients and both wanted uh, a space that was celebrated and spoke the narrative and shared the narrative of the Indigenous community. But it took about five years for everyone to sort of get on the same page and the grapple was real. Um, but now that they're a united front, they can take it to um, council and sort of get this progression happening. And... Um, the grapple was real and it was hard, but it was a really unique way of seeing two different ends of the uh, two different ends of, um, I guess, perspectives um, come together to create something that I think will be uh, a, a real value, a, a real valuable addition to their city and their community. Okay, we have a question at the back there. Hi, first time um, that I'm here. My name's Rebecca. Um, I recently visited the James Street Initiative, actually, so I really do appreciate the work up there in Brisbane. Um, I was hoping, Georgia, that you could give us a background about what the James Street Initiative is about, because I know that it's about more than just a nice hotel, the Khalil, and a nice restaurant and a nice shopping strip. And maybe um, the other presenters can kind of discuss how they think that might be relevant to Melbourne and the landscape that we're looking at down at Burke Street Mall, for example, with the closure of the David Jones Food Hall and men's building. Sorry, it's an emotional topic for me. I worked there for many years. Thanks, Georgia. I'm sorry to hear that you're so sad about that. I, my heart goes out to you. Um, 
something that's really interesting about James Street and Ingrid's approach, and Ingrid and Adrian's approach to um, building is they believe that, you know, you should add on to the existing that's there. Um, the character and the past adds value and intrigue into the space. And so if you can create a building that adds to that original existing um, core or uh, bone structure, whatever you'd like to call it, built form, um, and then that building is adaptable, um, it makes it durable and long-lasting, and it's a lifelong building. Um, so when you look at Ingrid and Adrian's materiality, for example, they're using brick, concrete, marble, stone, stuff that's really robust. Um, but what they do with the spaces and the layout and I guess the urban um, master plan for James Street um, allows it to be constantly uh, inundated with people and pedestrians, but one tenancy doesn't mean it's there forever. It, it can then be a, gel a gelato shop or it could be a retail store. Um, something that I think that's really interesting with Ingrid and Adrian's ethos, even with their own house, they designed it to be a place that could be used as a museum if they move out. And I think that is um, quite an interesting and different approach when you think about sustainability, rather than demolishing an entire building to start from scratch and build up again. They're creating these lifelong, durable buildings that are flexible um, and adapt to any use. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, and what uh, are the other thought leadership um, women here and yourself, Georgia, doing, I guess, in their day-to-day -day life? How can we support that? And, and what is something that we can do to kind of keep Melbourne the structure that we grew up and know and love? I think that that um, is an enduring kind of challenge for all of us um, that's not necessarily specific to this period of time, but I think that the impact that COVID-19 has had on our cities and on um, the tenants of retail buildings and hospitality and, and even transport um, within the city, its cultural life, every aspect of our city has been totally disrupted by COVID-19. And as Emma pointed out, there have been really positive opportunities um, to bring forward um, initiatives to enhance our civic space and create new transport options for people and to, to make our streets um, more pedestrian friendly. Um, but there are also huge challenges, I think, in ensuring that Melbourne continues to have a really rich cultural life um, in terms of you know, what, what is offered um, through entertainment, but also retail and hospitality, which are also important parts of our culture as well. So as the National Trust, as a, a heritage advocacy organisation, we will be advocating for the protection of historic buildings in the city that are able to, um, to host those fantastic uses and hopefully be adapted for new uses as our needs change over time. Um, but I think that it's really an important time for civic leadership, um, also for, you know, state and federal governments providing support 
for our cities um, to ensure that they can sort of bounce back um, and things might look different, um, but we still want them to be vibrant, sustainable and places that people love to live and work in. I mean, I guess I would just come in there, and I don't want to get too serious now because it is serious, but I want to be optimistic. Um, Melbourne's the hardest hit city in Australia um, because of the length of lockdown, obviously, and the inability of people to come into the city. Um, we are, in terms of municipality in the state, the hardest hit because we rely on people coming to the city to work, to then, um, you know, enjoy the city and then support small business and retail and hospitality, etc. And it's that, you know, it's the vibe, it's the character, it's the experience of that that is very real in Melbourne. Um, uh, what I would like to say, though, is cities evolve, cities change. And while we'll have memory and collective memory about certain things, and I'm devastated about David Jones, I did not realise this. Um, and what am I going to do without my salt and pepper calamari on a, on a tough day? But no, it is in the collective memory, but it may come back as something better or it might evolve to be something different that might not relate to you but may relate to someone else. We are incredibly blessed within the city with this extraordinary grid within the central city. We have the extraordinary neighbourhoods around the centre that have their own character and their place qualities and their extraordinary communities. Um, we have adaptable buildings and heritage, when we were doing the Hoddle Grid Heritage Review on the most, you know, let's be serious, valuable land in the whole of the country, um, it's pretty contested, right? But they are, we looked into the adaptability and uses over time, and it is extraordinary when you see what these buildings have housed and what they'll house into the future. Um, and so let's make sure what the buildings we're building now are as adaptable and as enduring and as beautiful and detailed, to your point earlier on, Tanya, I agree with you. We do things so sort of, I don't know, everything's a little not cared for sometimes within um, some architectural propositions within the city. Um, let's make sure that we're thinking about the enduring quality of the city, but also be open to things changing over time. Um, last push is, you know, if you have an office in the city and not yet back, come back in, because it is bloody great to see your colleagues and, and speak to people in the street. I sat out at self-preservation today, and I very, very rarely go out to lunch except for DJs and self-pres. And, you know, I was with some Queenslanders, and, oh, they were just like, look at this place. Enjoy the city and really, you know, really support the businesses of the city who bring that experience and will be part of your collective memory as well. So I just really encourage you to do that because we need to sustain the city, uh, get us through this tough bit, and then, you know, as we always have, we will change and grow and, well, not, not necessarily grow, that might not be a good thing, you know, who knows, but, what, but I think what we'll do is incredibly creative things will happen. Um, and that always happens in recessions, right? Creative things occur. Um, so let's put our creative minds, because there's a lot, of, a lot of creative people here tonight, get really optimistic about this, go for it. I'm really optimistic about the future of the city, notwithstanding we are in a really difficult position right now. Although it doesn't feel like that, does it, sitting in a car park in central Melbourne about to have a drink? I think that's a good place to end, other than to say, let's take over the streets on Monday as well. So let's... <laughs> let's channel the optimism and channel the fury at the same time. Um, please, if you have time, do stay with us. I don't know if we've got any tab left on the bar, maybe. Um, Please eat all the food so I don't have to take it home with me. And um, please keep 
coming to parlor events and we've got a bazillion planned and hopefully we are here to help build coalitions and build networks and keep um, being there for each other. Thank you for coming. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.